All right, it is Friday, my favorite day of the week. Uh, I mean, the week's closing, but also I get to talk to all my friends here on API Storytelling. So let me bring in my friends. I'm going to bring in Mike first here. Hello. Hey, how you doing? Happy Friday. Happy Friday. Welcome. Let's uh, let's get Aiden in here. Hey. Hello. Hey, to you hey, both. Happy Friday. Got it. Glad we're all back in here together. Um, and uh, and we have a we have a guest today as well. So, um, so do you guys have a busy week? Was it what would you say mid low grade? It was pretty busy for me. I'm pulling a lot of strings. It's it's, it's like all these promises are suddenly coming due. It's like, <laughs> oh, I actually have to do that. So it's been a bit of a challenge, but I'm I'm happy to see the back of the week. I'm happy to see Friday, and I can kind of wind down a little bit. I'm looking forward to today. How about you, Aiden? It's been busy. We've been onboarding people. Uh, and then today I had to write a conference talk, which is always fun. And I was able to get a one-day extension on recording it. So this afternoon should be a little more relaxed than it would have been otherwise. Nice, nice. I had my week, actually, work I had done in previous weeks all converged on this week. And it, so it looked like I got a whole bunch done. And I actually did very little this week. So it was like, it was one of those magical weeks. It's like, I did all this research and wrote all these stories long time ago, almost forgot they existed. And then they all published and all happened. I was like, wow. Yeah, very it nice. was the harvest, the harvest week. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So definitely uh, seeing the fruits of my labor. Um, and so um, as, I, as I'm still waiting for our guests to, to get ready and come in, um, I did want to uh, get your guys' quick thoughts on the Oracle v. Google copyright case, because that was the big one that came closing for me this week. And so I would just hear, love to hear any random thoughts, because I know Mike and I have been on this journey and had many conversations. Um, I don't think I've talked too much with you about it, Aiden, but I would love to hear just any of your guys' thoughts real quick. Go ahead, Aiden. So I uh, I can't say that I read too much about the final verdict. I've been following it over the last couple of years. And the only thing I do know for sure is that I presented Optic at a conference a, a while ago. And I ended up with like three emails from lawyers who were asking if we could like replay all the history of three different big five companies whose names I maybe shouldn't say, but there's five of them. So you can probably guess at least two um, because there's similar kinds of suits going on all over. So I'm curious, like if there's precedent that is set and what you guys think that precedent will be. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'll just say the first, first of all, I'm happy to see this seem to come to a close. Although I'm kind of with Aiden on the sense that I think it's really just the beginning of this of this process. The other thing I'll say is, man, I got I got to tell you, Ken, your write up is super super extensive. The material that you put together on this is super valuable. I really appreciate all the links, all the other content. So I would just I'm just saying because I'm not sure sure if you would. If people are curious about some of the background, Ken, you you have got the receipts on a lot of this, which I think is really, really important. I have always had the the notion in my head that it's it's describing the interfaces is open source, using them as a kind of a different thing, having access to them and so on and so forth. So I'm I'm really happy with how it seems to be going. 
but I think we're actually still very early in the curve. That's my, that's my yeah. read anyway. Agreed. I, it's ongoing and per my post, thank you, Mike. Um, there's a lot more to learn and there is a lot yeah. of precedent, Aiden. There is a lot that we need to build on and learn from. So we'll, we'll, we'll couch this conversation. I think this is a critical one that we can do um, for another episode in the future. Cause I think it, very much impact storytelling. So yep. um, with that said, I want to bring in our guest this week. Um, we kind of just grabbed him last minute. Um, he's a, a new member of my team um, at Postman, but he's mostly known for uh, being a lead in the JSON uh, schema community and being one of the you know uh, alpha leaders for the specification and helping move the, the specification forward, as well as just answering questions tirelessly in the Slack and doing many other things. But let me bring on Ben Hutton. And hey, now. There he is. All right. Hi. Good to see you, Ben. Welcome, Thank you. sir. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me to join your little chat. Well, for our audience, um, I mean, we you know, Ben's been being very great about just jumping in here. We don't have any agenda. We don't have any topics. We just wanted to talk to Ben. So going beyond what I just said, who are you? What do you do? Why, you know, uh, you know, why does JSON schema matter, I guess, to, to the world or to our audience? Um, yeah, I mean, JSON schema has a, has a lot of usage um, and it's grown a lot um, since, since it began, but also since I joined as well. Um, I think, you know, when I first started looking into to API specification languages about five years ago, um, what I what I wanted wasn't really out there, and it was a kind of toss up between a few different ones, and I settled on on JSON schema being the closest, um, but ultimately it was still lacking, um, and the people that were uh, running it had kind of disappeared and nobody had admin rights and a few of us decided we wanted to, to see if we could move it forward um, and with blessing of a few people that still had commit access they kind of redirected um, Jason schema over to a new organization and we kind of went from there and that's that's where we've been for the last five years but in terms of yeah here, here am I and, and what am I doing what am I interested in um I've I've been interested in APIs since university. Um, I remember, you know, back in the day, oh, I can't remember the name of the service. There was there was a service that indexed loads of loads of APIs. I think it might even be still going. Um, do any of you ring ring any bells? Mm, no, <laughs> no. I, I didn't. I didn't nothing. go to university, unfortunately. <laughs> no, the, no. There was there was there's someone like. API index online and I just started having a look and trying out loads of different APIs to, to see what was easy to use and see what was interesting. Um, and I did a my dissertation on um, federated music search engines, um, trying to sort of find out what streaming service had had the, the artist and the album you want to listen to because it's something that nobody had done and uh, I quickly found out there were a lot of uh, metadata issues and did a bit of a study around that. So I've always in been interested in APIs and data structures and the validity. Um, and I, I kind of ended up, um, yeah, working on, on JSON schema because I think it's it's really important for people that are working in that space. Uh, 
when you uh, were I, when sorry, when you were working in uh in university on this stuff, was there anything like JSON schema? What was the format you were working in, or was um, it all just Wild West back then? Yeah, I think it was oh, Wild West. The only thing that kind of really got a mention was Wisdle, um, and none of the APIs that I investigated were using it. Um, yeah. It seemed very much reserved for enterprise usage, or at least that was the perception, as far as I could tell. Uh -huh. Well, I see JSON schema written on Kin's whiteboard, which is a goal of mine to end up there one day. Uh, I don't see Wisdle, so I, I think I think uh, the, the market has spoken. Uh, my therapist yeah. won't won't let me put Wisdle. She says I'm not allowed to talk about Wisdle anymore. Gotta move on. Let it go. <laughs> yeah. In terms of um, you know, just before I came to Postman. Um, started only last week. Um, the, the reason I, I really got involved in JSON Schema is um, I was building an API or looking to build a collaborative API specification. It was kind of simple. I only had one endpoint. Um, but the, the product I was involved in was to do with uh, rare and undiagnosed genetic conditions. And um, a lot of databases which house that sort of information are siloed for various different reasons, including legal and political reasons. Um, so a group of um, astute academics and, and um, clinicians got together and decided they wanted to create a federated um, discovery network for these rare and undiagnosed conditions based on patient data. Um, so myself and a number of others um, devised a, an API structure and process which would enable us to, to do that. Um, and that's that's kind of how I got into JSON schema and going, JSON schema is kind of what we want, but it's not quite there. So let's see if we can improve it. I think that's why that's why having something really solid for developing APIs, you know, it's not necessarily all about the, the commercial sectors um, and banking sectors, even though they make you know life a lot easier with open banking sort of work. Um, but also it has a huge impact on, um, you know, the collaborability of designers to, to share data across boundaries and that has an impact for health related data and impacting people's lives. Yeah, you know, that's that's actually a really good observation in sort, sort of like the, the story of APIs in general. Uh, there, there, there is a lot of my time is spent on helping commercial enterprises figure out how to share data, and they have, they have relatively different motivations. Uh, in general, they want to share widely behind a firewall and narrowly in the public. Whereas mm -hmm. in some of the things you're describing, um, you want to share widely among the public. You, you sort of are looking for serendipitous connections. Sometimes you want to have enough information out there that people. People can find weak links, you know, weak connections, and strengthen those connections. Research is probably a really good example of that. I had a, I had an experience, a similar experience with with a friend of mine, uh, Leonard Richardson, who works in libraries, and he wanted to create standards and formats and APIs that reached across lots and lots of different places. And one of the one of the observations he made, and I'd be curious to see if this works in the academic space because uh, you kind of had some experience there, is in the, you know, in the public API space for libraries, the more people you get involved, the better the API becomes. In other words, 
I, I don't want it siloed. I want it actually expanded in lots of ways. And they're dealing, of course, in libraries and very public information. Uh, so the quality goes up when it's easier, when you lower the barrier of entry. Uh, I don't have that experience in the commercial world, and I'm wondering in the academic world where where that line is drawn between, like you say, privacy and you know, uh, data integrity and things like that, and just sharing in general. What what's kind of your experience on how widely you can share and how safely you can you can build these APIs? Yeah, so there are definitely different different levels at which you can do this sort of stuff. <clears throat> Excuse me, and. Um, you know, as well as the the pure academics who who deal in a lot of theoretical, often with the the big research institutes, they're backed up with um, very solid IT teams and even you know infrastructure providers which do do sort of research, but not as an academic pursuit. Um, that that look to combat some of the potential privacy concerns and those sort of issues. Mm -hmm. um, so the the standards organisation that um, I was involved in, uh, it's called the Global Alliance for Genomics and Health, um, and they have produced a number of work products over the last five or so years, um, one of, well, sev several of which are to do with, with cryptography um, and security wow. data. Um, so I, I don't know how much you know about, about genetic data and sequencing. Um, so if someone has their, their DNA sequence, there are, there are billions of, of data points. And that gets stored in a in a file, and that file tends to be rather large in size, um, especially <laughs> when you multiply that by multiple people. Um, so you know, if you want to do any processing on that, you don't load the whole thing into memory unless you have RAM to spare, because um, mm -hmm. that gets rather expensive, especially if you want to test a theory across a cohort of say a thousand people. Suddenly, you're talking, you know, a terabyte of RAM, which is is you know, not untenable in some data centers, um, even the data center that we had, um, but your job will be waiting for a while because it's queued. Um, on the flip side, you, you, you can't just access a file sequentially or, you know, at specific points in and have it secure at the same time. Um, so one of the people in the IT team at the, the Sanger Institute, which was where uh, I was working previously, developed an approach to have cryptography um, in chunks specifically for this sort of genetic data so they could target specific locations but also have it be cryptographically secure hmm. wow so so with, was that was that like crypto cryptography uh, cryptography in flight like it was was it stored cryptographically or yeah, just transferred so, so really it was encrypted at rest mm. oh wow Wow. Um, and that was called uh, Crypt4GH, if anybody's interested in, in looking that specification up. And it went through um, the, the approval process for the standards organization and is, is used now in um, academic production environments. So this would allow us to be like double blind. Like I could, I could be looking for some pattern or some trend between different parts of patient genetic code. And then um, if I'm understanding correctly, like I wouldn't actually have to load all that in or even look at the real values to determine whether or not the pattern held like something along that. I'm probably not describing it um, accurately. Kind of, but not quite. It's, it's more that you wouldn't have to have, have everybody's um, data unencrypted at rest. Um, 
and you also wouldn't have to load all of it into decrypt it um, like standard sort of um, file cryptography works um, yeah. for the most part. <clears throat> so so talk, talk to me about trust. I mean, you guys touched on it a little bit and I feel like I feel like JSON schema, I think there's a lot of misconceptions around what JSON schema is is for in the space. A lot of people view it as as a modeling uh, a solution for modeling objects um, that get passed back and forth for between APIs, whether request and response, a publish, subscribe. But I I saw it as very much about trust in 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 validating that what you're giving me is what you, you promised you're giving me, and I'm. And because if I pull something from an API too many times and it's not what your documentation said or not what you promised me or not what, what I got from you last time, my trust goes down the tubes pretty quickly and I'm going to move on. So can you can you talk about the, the, the validation aspect of JSON schema? Like why is it such a critical uh, piece of the, the API kind of tool chain in that way? Yeah, I mean, so... Going back to the the API that we created, which was to do with um, rare and undiagnosed genetic conditions, um, it was you know, JSON schema wasn't quite ready at the time when we were developing it, so we wrote the specification by hand and wrote some JSON by hand and said, you know, here are the values, here are what these values mean, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And we still got situations where there were unexpected ambiguities. Um, particularly, you know, in written English, um, particularly when you're you're crossing language barriers um, into into languages you, you never even heard of, um, and you're reaching other other companies and other institutes that uh, just have different assumptions, um, and that's you know every time you hit one of those errors. Uh, every time you hit one of those those bits where you can't process the data in your system um, because it doesn't doesn't meet the specification as you understand it, rather than um, you know what's defined in the schema, then you've potentially lost the chance to to literally save or change someone's life. Um, and in in the in the space that we were doing, where it's rare and undiagnosed conditions they'll probably loop back and eventually manage to, to, to work out the, the problems. Um, but in other health systems um, where they don't retry or, or reevaluate things on a regular basis, that might not be the case. Um, and you can apply this to, to all sorts of industries. You know, if, if something doesn't work right one time, there's no guarantee it's going to be retried and that could have massive ramifications for for individuals yeah it's uh i think this this is a part of the public performance that i feel not all enterprise and organizations or even developers uh, many of us get or think about is it's not just publicly accessible or um available using public dns it's it's it, it, we use contract, I think, in ways, you know, to describe it that I think meet some business people's needs. But it's much more than that. And, and I mean, I, I feel, you know, it's about validation, like in a, in a personal sense, to a certain degree, I mean, from a, a provider or a consumer standpoint, like, 
there, there's a certain validation that has to happen in that moment for us to continue engaging and strengthen our relationship, continue down this road. And then, as you said, in different use cases, um, health, health being one, I've seen, you know, uh, disaster, you know, I, I've worked on FEMA, which is our U.S. Uh, uh, agency for disasters, you know, those APIs that this is, depends on whether, you know, people will find shelter, you know, in the next couple of hours, things like that. So validation is really important. And I know Mike really, we've had a lot of these deep conversations about uh, he's really into space and, and uh, building, building software systems that, that <laughs> will live for a long time. And there's a certain amount, a different level of trust, I think that goes into those because you're sending people or really expensive projects that take a long 20, 30 years up into space and you have this one chance. So I think validation is super critical. And, and while I think JSON schema helps us annotate and, and define and model I think it does a very good job. I, I really think that the validation is is really overlooked by people who who use JSON schema, and it's huge. It's a massive audience who use it. I think. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's well and great to define models, but then if you don't actually validate that you're conforming to those, and your system errors, and you never you never hear about it, then you've really lost the value of what you were trying to attain. It's it's not really served the purpose that you set out to to do. Um. So, so that this actually touches on a thing that that I think I kind of stumbled on, and I didn't quite understand. And maybe you can help me with it too. So, I tend to I've kind of gone on record as is I'm a fan of schemas on the way out, but not on the way in because I want to be very much that sort of Postel's law. You know, if you can process the incoming safely, uh, you know, and meaningfully go ahead and ignore the details. That's kind of how HTML worked, right? But that's that's challenging with several other languages. Uh, and one of the things that XML and XML schema does is it does not do this very well, right? It's strong types, both inbound and outbound. And it's really hard to safely extend, you know, some additional properties. But if I remember correctly, Jason, one of the things I that I think I noticed in JSON schema is you can actually uh, use a schema uh, to validate a document that may have some additional bits to it, right? There's some like an additional properties, true or false or something. I don't remember the exact mechanism, but it, yeah. when I discovered that, it suddenly made JSON schema so much more friendly to me because I don't know where I'm getting data from and, and I can still validate sort of the core of what I'm interested in. Do I get that right? Do I have that, do I have that understanding correct? Yeah, I think the the easiest way to um, think about it conceptually is JSON schema is a constraints-based language. Um, you know, if you want to have a constraint, you have to specify what that is. Um, that's that's the sort of big difference from a data modeling language, where you know you build a class, you specify the allowed things, and that is it. Yeah. You specify what's in it, and anything you don't specify isn't allowed. Whereas JSON schema is kind of the opposite. So. Yep. That the very 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 simple example of this is is an empty schema you know open brace close brace allows absolutely anything anything is valid there's no validation there uh, inversely you know if you have a, a not empty uh, object then nothing is valid it's, it's inverted that so yeah I think that's that's a really important distinction that people often don't realize um, you know I answer a question on this almost every other week. 
Yeah, and that, and the way you just explained it actually really clarifies it for me. It's a constraints-based language rather than a modeling, right? A strict modeling language, right? And that makes it hugely, hugely valuable for the kind of work that I do. So that's one of the big things I really appreciate in that. Um, so that that was a big learning moment for me is to think about it in a way uh, that it based on these are the constraints, and if you don't mention it then it's allowed is basically kind of the approach, right? Yeah. Well, a question, I would say uh, a question I have about that, uh, and I, I have seen some of these questions get popped up in the forums and other places. Um, how do you handle that tension between people wanting it to be more of the domain modeling language um, and then the constraint language? And this might be like the, the big elephant in the room question, but um, it seems like there are so many different ways people try to use JSON schema today. And I, I kind of wonder if you could talk about yeah. that for a moment and how you see that tension. Sure, I think that's that's a really important question. And I think it's something that hasn't really been obvious um, unless you've been paying really, really close attention um, what's been going on the last couple of years. Um, so it's, it's something we noticed immediately taking over the project that there was more concerns than just the validation aspect, which was kind of all the project was focused on. Um, it didn't take long to discover, you know, there were people generating forms, there were people generating um, classes and all sorts of code based on the schemas that simply weren't defined to do that. The, the language wasn't defined in a way that allowed that to be done in an unambiguous way. And there are libraries which claim to do the same thing, but they, they do it in several different ways. Um, so you've got that complete lack of inconsistency, um, lack of consistency, sorry. Um, but speaking to, to what you just said about how, how do you deal with that tension, um, it's, yeah, it has been, you know, really that the only elephant in the room for the last five years. And it's something we've thought about a lot um, because we get questions about it all the time and we have to go, um, we're really sorry, but there isn't a good answer for you. Um, particularly with the way the JSON schema team works and how we operate, we none of us were up until last week working full time on the project. So even if we had some really nice ideas on how we wanted to, to do the data modeling part or support data modeling, we definitely didn't have the resources to do it. Um, so a couple of years ago, um, Henry floated, um, Henry Andrews, this is uh, one of the editors and part of the team, um, floated an idea of uh, vocabularies, which would be a, a, an approach within JSON schema to allow other people to define new keywords, but to have um, the fact that these keywords should be known encoded into the schemas themselves. Um, so with the 2019-09 and 2020-12 um, drafts of JSON schema, we've, we've enabled vocabularies, um, and now implementations can pick up on the fact that um, a particular schema is is designed to uh, work with a specific set of keywords, and those keywords have a specific semantic meaning, um, and they can then be picked up by implementations and either processed or rejected based on what the implementation supports. Uh, that being said, we're still waiting for uh, new vocabularies to be developed. One of the first ones was the, the Open API schema vocabulary, which extended the, the JSON schema vocabulary or dialect um, and added a few few keywords. And I know work is ongoing to, to sort of um, put out an initial 
data modeling um, vocabulary. And that's that's kind of where we want to go is to provide people the tools to to write extensions, but in a way that's concerned about um, compatibility. Um, otherwise, people write extensions, publish them, and it's only good for their implementation, which is not a lot of use to anyone. Um, yeah. It has some utility, and that can it can inform um, other people collaborating on on new vocabularies, but otherwise, it becomes very much. Uh, you need to use this implementation in this language or it doesn't work, which is not good interoperability. Yeah, and I think that's such a cool approach to solving the problem because the thing I've come to trust about JSON schema is that uh, I can basically validate any data against a valid JSON schema in pretty much any language and it gives me the same answer. And I think that the, con the constraint nature of the protocol um, is part of the reason why you're able to make assertions across languages independent of the way that language actually works. Um, but then I think like that, for me, that, that expectation hadn't really held with the code generators and some of the other use cases people have made because now it's like this thing I, I trust all the time. It's harder to trust sometimes because when I do it to Java, it's different than when I do it somewhere else. So I think that that's a really cool approach and I'm excited to, I've been following a little bit, but I'm really excited to see sort of the, what the next year of people actually building vocabularies and then making tools compatible with them brings. Yeah, so I think that's, sorry, go on, Kim. No, go ahead, Ben. I think that's, um, you know, where it's a really great time for me to be able to come on board with Postman is, is to really strengthen those um, industry links and those implementer links um, to, to really pull pe people together to, to work on these new vocabularies and create a, a collaborative space that people can really define these properly to the point where it matters for the the, um, the tool suppliers. And, and I think it fits well, I mean, API storytelling, vocabularies. Um, I think for me, like one of the things I'm trying to instigate as an evangelist and someone who just kind of matches people up, tells stories about is uh, uh, one of the, the leading community members, Jason Schema, whose name happens to be Jason, actually, um, is, is we're currently working, um, actually it was my meeting right before this, where we got approval to pay him to redo the documentation. So now I, I don't need to tell you this, Ben, we, we just did our meeting. Um, so it happened. And so, but then it was suggested that, hey, can we, because there was another suggestion from a previous day to write a, a narrative on the open API vocabulary um, and publish the story on it. So we're going to also loop that in and bundle that and, and get Jason to write that and tell that story. Um, and so really it's like, you know, I mean, creating new vocabularies, but then telling the stories of those new vocabularies and helping people understand why they matter, why they impact, how they're being used is such an important part of it because then it's just a virtuous cycle from there that people then understand it, they think about it, and I think it'll help um, strengthen Jason Schema core when we're when we're telling the story from all these different angles as vocabularies arise and, and then people, I think, because once you, I think you live through a vocabulary uh, narrative and implementation that, that speaks to whatever you're doing in the API space or business sector, then you're going to understand the core, I think better, I think, and you're going to understand the separation. And I, when I encounter people, I mean, 
and Ben and I was talking about this the other day. I, I was sitting in on a, a, H, a IETF conversation where they were kind of talking down to Jason schema and saying, "Oh, it's just a draft." And I'm like, and Ben and I are like, "It's everywhere, though. It's like it's so ubiquitous. It's yes, it's a draft, and we'll mature it, but it's so everywhere." But people still very much view it from their perspective and their view of the world. And for me, the vocabulary part starts starts to hopefully separate that and then help them mature and evolve in their understanding of the magic of constraints, I think, and, and the opportunities that constraints bring. But people have trouble seeing that because it's not as, I don't know, it's not as relatable. And I think the other part of that is once they see uh, someone else tell a story about a vocabulary they don't get and don't understand. It's more of that perspective in life. You'll, oh, oh, those people, that's how they think. Oh, I hadn't thought of that, you know, because I'm in my little silo. So I think vocabularies are going to be very powerful in helping people see and understand JSON schema. Yeah, I mean, one of the, the sectors we've, we've tried to reach out on, which may not be a, a, an immediate obvious one, um, is databases. Um, MongoDB already used JSON schema in their the database to do validation, um, but in a very subset, superset way and from draft four. And, you know, we, we know the end of that story. We know where that goes. And I'd love to be able to catapult them to that point. Um, but I, I haven't been able to get anywhere with them. It's kind of like they don't really understand what part it plays in their product, even though it's in their product or I've not got through to the right people. And they go, yeah, that's that's great. Make a suggestion and upvote it in the community. And it's kind of like, well, that's that's not really what I was offering to do and to help with, but it's just frustrating. Yeah, trying to help people understand and see um, from their vantage point and shift them a little bit in a comfortable way. I mean, because you can really make people feel uncomfortable pretty fast in their world, in their known world, if you uh, challenge it too heavily. And so I think JSON schema is really fascinating. Honestly, like Postman is a similar one for me in that I've seen, it's why I'm working at Postman now, because I saw it used in so many places in so many different ways. Like how people view it is, is wildly different. And I find that fascinating that something can become so so ubiquitous um, without people fully understanding the big picture, finding a, a slice that works for them. And JSON schema, like I'm going through one of the things that I'm helping Ben and the community with is quantifying who's using it and going through, you know, okay, well, how does how does a, a database platform use it? How does a gateway provider use it? Um, how does the NSA use it? Ben and I were talking about this the other day that the NSA in the U.S. has a page dedicated to JSON schema and educating people uh, within within the NSA about using it. Um, and so all of these contexts are super fascinating and make for great storytelling. We just got to work our way through them and figure out how to tell the stories from it. So any it, have have. I mean, everyone here. I know. I know your view on it, Mike. And it sounds like you're using it, Aiden. But how do you guys? I mean, have you guys come across interesting uses? People that are using it for more modeling, more constraint forms. I mean, the forms I find fascinating. Any other interesting yeah. use? So, well, I think uh, the one story that I wanted to share with Ben when he was on the call 
Um, I, I actually met a team uh, a couple of weeks ago that is using both RAML and OpenAPI. Um, and they're using RAML just to define the data models inside of their application, not for any particular reason, but just because they had a Java generator that worked with RAML that they built a long time ago. And then they still wanted to generate their docs and do the things in OpenAPI for, uh, for their actual API contract. So it's just fascinating to me that, uh, you know, like Ken said, like everyone brings their own use cases to these tools. And um, to, it, it feels like that just shouldn't be a problem that they're having. Like, like it, it pains me that they, that they are maintaining two things and don't realize that there's a way to get out of that world that they're in. And hopefully vocabularies and other things like that make this all shareable. Um, one thing I've heard from talking to a bunch of gateways about doing validation um, is just the, the complication of supporting anything um, that has to be sort of enforced the same way everywhere. And also from, um, from actual users who have tried to use gateway validation before and have failed, I've been told like, hey, we're multi-cloud. And even though the open API and the JSON scheme is the same, like this works differently in Azure than it did in API Gateway. And uh, there's some subtle difference somewhere in how their validation rules work. So I'm really excited about like the potential for vocabularies leading to like reference implementations and WASM ways of running the same logic everywhere. And that to me seems like it could be super powerful for uh, making people more comfortable that this is something I can use for these other use cases too. Yeah, I mean, my my uh, immediate comment on the on the gateway issue is um, so often we see people um, post questions on in the Stack Overflow, and um, they post their schema, but they don't include the dollar schema property. Mm -hmm. So any implementation that's running it has no idea what version of JSON schema the schema should be running in. Um, and it's one of the, the tweets I put out yesterday because I was I was getting a bit frustrated with some people. Um, saying you know if if you write a schema put your dollar schema in because if you don't you are going to run into interrupt problems it's not a when it's you are going to um uh, you know you, you're going to upgrade the package that you're using or the library you're using and it may have changed its default um mm -hmm. and that's that's exactly the kind of thing we run into all the time um you, know, you want interoperability Sometimes uh, generating your schema based on your classes and expecting it to work forever isn't isn't going to cut it. Um, if, if you want interrupt, sometimes you, you have to learn a little bit of, of the specification language that you're, you're dealing with. I think that. Yeah. Oh, go ahead, Mike. No, you go. You go. You go. Ahead. No, I was just going to say the. Uh, I think the part of understanding interoperability. There's a certain amount of responsibility in you picking your head up and coming out of your bubble to even make that possible. Yes, interoperability is a very technical thing that we need to do, but it also involves you picking your head up and seeing the bigger world and thinking about it, which unfortunately not all of us have 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 the affordance of in our in our daily world. But hopefully, you know, we can we can help reduce friction for people enough that they're able to do that from time to time. Yeah, you know, on that point, I, I think this kind of dovetails what I was going to uh, mention to Ben as well. I think one of one of the experiences I've had, I've been spending a lot of time on the vocabulary story as well, and I'm just so happy to see uh, this growing uh, in, in inside the, the the JSON schema spec. I think it's a fantastic 
approach to widening, not only just widening the, the net in terms of who you're involved with, but also improving the quality. You know, being able to, to use vocabulary without having to write a whole new schema or write a whole new language or anything like that. That's like, I think this is really fantastic. One of the things that um, I've been working on for a very, quite a few number of years is this uh, vocabulary fit, you know, focus specification ALPS uh, that I've, I've talked about several times. And there's a team in particular, the reason I bring it up, there's a team in particular in Japan that's been doing a lot of work uh, to, in helping the ALPS specification learn more and more about how to use schema as a as an enrichment system, sort of as a, as a support system. And so I think this whole idea of vocabularies in general, which is what ALPS is really focused on, and now seeing it in inside JSON schema as well, is I think teaching a lot of us about that next level of interoperability. And that's why I was going to mention it um, at, at this point. There's a, to me, I'm, I'm experiencing a kind of a, a new dichotomy, and that is the more interoperable uh, the language, the more interoperable the specification, the, the more uses, the more uh, use cases and communities it supports, um, it starts to get more and more abstract. I mean, it gets more and more challenging to kind of sort out what's valid and what's not. Um, and it's, it's sort of like a price you pay for widening your net, right? So I'm wondering if that if you're experiencing anything like that in the JSON schema space, as you build vocabularies as you expand its reach it's not just validation it's also data modeling and, and and all these other things are you running into this challenge where um it becomes almost i don't want, i don't want to say unintelligible but it's much harder to grok does that make sense where, where i'm kind of leading with this idea yeah yeah and i think i think this this links in with with what kim was saying is we have to make it easier for people um, yeah. so one of one of the things we often get is you know a developer that works in in any place is, is usually rushed off their feet with features to deliver for the next release or whatever and, and they've got pressures right and um, they may find json schema for the first time oh great i need to add some validation i'll generate the json schema from from my classes so for it comes in from the api and translates into my classes great i can generate the schema it doesn't quite work why doesn't it quite work uh, i don't know can someone help me please um and this is this is not uncommon um, and we can alleviate those sorts of stress problems of, of first encounters by by having linting. Um, and that's one of the big things I want to, to start working on over this next year is, is a linter that's easy for people to use and that comes built into the tooling they're using. Um, it's, it's great that JSON Schema is already um, built into uh, VS Code and PHP Storm and a number of other uh, IDEs mainly because it's it's useful for validating and doing IntelliSense, which is another utility JSON schema for um, you know configuration files. But if it can be used to um, provide a, a default uh, linting capability as well for people that generate these sort of files, they go, oh, hang on, I've got a I've got a warning here that it hasn't got a dollar schema. Maybe that's going to solve my problems if I define that. Oh, I'll have to have a look at this particular aspect. Um, I think that ties in, in with what you were saying is, you know, we need to make it easier to understand, yep. Um, yep. but we also have to avoid the complexity for the simple use cases. So validation, which 
only needs to do really simple things, doesn't need all of some of the more complex things and more advanced use cases that we've added over the last few years. Um, and one of the other things that I want to investigate over this next year is if we can define a, a simplified JSON schema vocabulary, which covers the majority of use cases. Um, and I'm going to be collaborating on a number of the, um, so I'm going to be collaborating with a number of the um, most used library authors to see how we can make that happen. Um, I think we definitely have access to the data. Um, hopefully, I'm going to try and get some access to APIs for NPM to get access to package file data and stuff like that to do evaluations to work out, you know, what's the minimum set of constraint language we need to, to validate the majority of use cases. Um, and if we can simplify, have, have a simplified core, but also the expansive <coughs> core, then we've got a sort of multi-level difficulty making that, that herd a little, lot lower for first-time users. One of, one of the uh, things I've, I've figured out uh, building DevTools for so long that, that might be interesting as a dimension on the way you think about this problem is that um, the difference between like the upfront cost and the long-term maintenance cost of anything that you set up for someone um, are very, very different. Uh, and like they're different in degree and in kind. So like, I think it's very obvious to folks that they want to generate um, you know, a bunch of JSON schema from their existing classes because that's easy um, in Mark, quote, unquote, easy. Then there's also a lot of people who want to generate classes from their JSON schema. And like you end up with this two-sided uh, kind of issue where, you, you know, we have a bunch of tools going one way, a bunch of tools going the other way. Um, and then like, yeah, the, the library changes or there's a new constraint you want to add and now you have to figure out how to well, this is in JSON schema land, this is how we would write this thing. Uh, and that'll be validated by our gateway. But then like in Java land, the regex format is different than the format that will work. Like, you end up in these, these interesting uh, back and forth. So I think I think part of what, what Ken was saying earlier about like taking responsibility, um, I think I think ultimately like teams have to recognize that they that they might need to make a decision like one time to you know, go all schema and then generate code or go all code and generate schema and just decide what side of that they want to live on. And I really like this idea of, of linting. Um, I, I did a lot of static analysis stuff in the past. And what I found is that like, sometimes linting and, and nudging is far more effective than generating, uh, especially when it comes to complicated classes and things in your code that you don't, you want to add other things in there too that aren't part of the JSON schema. So like, I really like that, this idea of basically being able to nudge people you know, one way or the other. And I think that's something that, that I'd be happy to help explore or talk about more. Like I could go for six hours about why nudging is better than generating. Yeah, yeah, let's definitely uh, connect on that and definitely uh, see how you can help out. Yeah, that'd be really great. I think I was giving Ben and team, because uh, I now have a team, yay, um, a walkthrough of Postman today. Because not, not that they don't know Postman, it's just here's a fresh look at it. And there's a lot of validation going on um, manually and, and auto automatically, but there wasn't a lot of nudging going on. And Ben's like, well, why do I got to click twice to, to get that <laughs> feedback loop? Why do I got to, you know, why am I not, why is it not just nudging me all along the way throughout my journey here and just, and, and, and f pushing me in the right direction? Great feedback. You know, I think as, as tool builders, we've got to really think about how we're just going to just 
you know, put up those guardrails for folks and then provide them a feedback loop, not bombard them with notifications and, and you know, but figure out how we, I, I like the word nudge. I think nudge works well. Yeah, it's really good. I mean, you know, but so many people you know, develop a, a new SaaS platform or whatever, and they have a particular workflow in mind. You know, mm. the majority of new SaaS products are not going to be like Jira, where you can completely customize your workflow in any which way you like, which is is lovely, but it requires a heck of a lot of thinking and planning to, to really make that functional. Um, and it's in SaaS applications, you know, like Postman, where you, you kind of need to have some workflows in mind, and I'm sure they, they do, um, but to guide people along those those different paths. I think you know, this is what Kim was, was demoing earlier, uh, because there hasn't hasn't been that sort of guiding. Actually, there's so many more use cases and so many more ways of doing things than potentially where it was even imagined or, or conceived of when um, the platform has been developed over the years. I think that's speaking to the strength of the platform, uh, but also, as, as we've discussed, you know, it's going to help to to analyze those user stories that people are doing and see how you can guide people down those different paths, which add the most value to what they want to get done. Are yeah, user you know, stories a con oh. uh, I was just make a, a dumb joke. I was going to say, are user stories a constraint based uh, vocabulary? Uh, but <laughs> ignore me. I stepped all over you, man. I'm sorry. <laughs> you're good you're good i hope it made someone laugh um you, you know what you're touching on it reminds me uh you know it's very easy for me to write a uh, a constraint system where there's only one way to get it correct right and i just keep telling everybody no 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 you can't compile you can't write until finally they get it just the way i want and then i say you're good but it's so much harder to start creating tooling and creating languages that allow people to be creative in the way they want to be creative, right? I want to create a modeling language. I want to create a workflow language. I want to create a validation language. We have all of these opportunities. And one of the things uh, that I see happening is as you, as you sort of widen the field and you add these use cases, you attract new communities. And I'm interested in this part, but I'm not interested in that part. And that's where things like vocabulary becomes super powerful, right? Because vocabulary lets you narrow the field. It sort of hides the things from me that I really don't quite understand or need to deal with and lets me focus on my job and what's really, really important. And then when you add this ability to do linting, right, which is now like we've been talking about before, nudging things along, you know, you know, it's a little bit of the, of the I don't know what, what you would say, technically correct, politically correct, clippy, right? You know, ding, 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 I think, I think you're missing a dollar schema from this message. Would you like to add one? You know, I think this is a sign of the, the richness and the maturity of the space where what happens is, yeah, you could actually do anything you want, but you know, it gets easier and easier to, to start running with scissors. So let's give you some nudges. Let's give you some vocabularies. Let's give you some functional rails. So I, I'm really, excited to see this level now i'm just hearing about this linting for the first time maybe maybe i haven't been paying attention but i'm really excited to hear these things coming along because to me that signals a maturity and a breadth of community that is super super exciting to me yeah i think what excites me most about that is there's you know at least sort of four or five different 
individuals or groups that already have some sort of JSON schema linting that are that are ready and willing to contribute those rules. Um, but it's, it's a little way off. You know, we want to do it right, and it's going to take some time to do that right. And if you want to have the the if you want to reach the same bar or the same even the same space as as how ESLint operates, not in mm -hmm. terms of, of technical, but the the operationally um, and community wise, then yeah, we've got a bit of work to do there. Well, um, I think we're at the top of the hour, gentlemen. Um, this has been great. Um, I can tell we could go on. I mean, I feel like I, I feel yeah. like we need, especially get Aiden and Ben on a six-hour segment talking. <laughs> but um, we'll we'll work on that. We, you know, we've got Ben full time now, so we can uh, we can plug him in as needed. Um, but thank you, Ben. Um, really appreciate you joining, especially just kind of last moment and being such a good sport. Thank Please you tell your wife, thank you for giving you yeah. the time to do this this evening. Cause I know it's later for you. Um, and this is quality family time. So thank you. And, uh, um, I will see you at work, uh, tomorrow. Oh wait, no, it's the weekend. No. Yes. It's yeah. the weekend. <laughs> I'll see you next week, man. I'll see you next yeah. week. I mean, see? I might be yeah. tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. See I'll, you on the internet. I'll see you on Slack. I'm sure I'll see you. But <laughs> thank, thank you, Ben. You we'll see you later. See you, Ben. Bye. Cool. See you. Yep. Uh, very cool. Well, thank you guys for that. That was uh, yeah. that was interesting. That the vocabulary piece I think fits very well. I think we could go down several rabbit holes there with API storytelling. Oh yeah. Yeah. But I want to talk me, about Alps one episode. Oh yeah. Yeah. To, to me, this, this vocabulary step is the next, uh, the next important layer, and everybody's doing some version of this. I can, I, you know, I could do a six hours on it, but I'm just very happy to see uh, Jason Schema is healthy and happy, and you know, developing forward. This is this is very exciting for me. I love this stuff. It's good. Well, um, you enjoy your weekend, you guys. Uh, I'm gonna let you go first, Mike, because I let you on first, but. Uh, Good to see you this week. Um, get some rest. Yeah. And yeah. we'll see we'll Come see you next week. We'll see you next week, Mike. Okay. See you, Mike. <laughs> oh, I cut him off. Um thank you. All right. This has been another good, good one, you. sir. I uh, have a good one, Ken. Happy weekend. All right. I'll I'll ping you on Slack with more seeds to plant in your brain over the weekend. But uh um if I don't see you on the Slack, so I'll I'll see you next week. Awesome. Can't wait to grow them. Talk soon. All right. Bye bye. Oh man, that's always fun. That was cool. Ben's, uh, I think, a really insightful and shares a, a, a very interesting slice of the API storytelling pie that I think we're going to keep exploring. So thank you, everyone.